Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everyone, this is Tim Chavez from Faith Matters. In 2018, Pete Davis was graduating from Harvard Law School and was chosen to give a commencement address that ended up going unexpectedly viral, having now been viewed over 30 million times. The thesis of Pete's speech was that our culture has entered what he calls infinite browsing mode. With so many options to choose from and devices that present those options to us literally endlessly, we can become paralyzed by choice and inadvertently live out our lives without ever dedicating ourselves to something. And this lack of choosing and committing over the long haul has real consequences, Pete argues. It prevents us from finding the meaning and impact that we're longing for. Pete's ideas eventually crystallized into a really incredible book, Dedicated, which explores these ideas in depth. We loved this book and found it to be so relevant to the conversations we seem to always be having. In this conversation, we were able to talk with Pete about many of the reasons we might fear committing to something, including the fear of missing out, the fear of regret, and the fear of association with something with which our values aren't totally aligned. But, Pete argues, commitment in the face of those fears is what leads us to long-term purpose and impact, real community, and connection with something truly transcendent. We can't emphasize enough how important and relevant we found this book, and how infectious we found Pete's enthusiasm for these deeply resonant ideas. We are so excited to share this episode with you, and we really hope you enjoy the conversation with Pete Davis. Well, Pete, thank you so much for being here. We are so excited to have you on the podcast. So welcome, and thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks so much. We just, I want to tell you right out of the gate how grateful we feel for this book. I think you are talking right to the heart of some really important and meaningful conversations that are happening right now in our own faith community. And so, and I feel like you painted a way forward that feels so energizing and connecting and healing, and it just feels so timely. And I've been really excited about it. So thank you for putting this work out in the world. (laughs) I'll just add to that. Aubrey, a couple, I mean, what one was it? Two or three weeks ago, found the book somehow and immediately yelled down to me and said, listen to this and read me the description of the book. And I was like, well, yeah, that's that's the book we need. So here we are. <laughs> and this then I narrated so much. the book. You know, it's funny. Much. You write a book. You know, I, I'm now a lot of years into this journey because it came out of the speech. You know, I, yeah. you give the speech. You don't get any immediate feedback aside from like people didn't walk out of it or something. You know, they get polite <laughs> yeah. laughs at the end. Um, and then you write this book, you you know, you go underground to write it, you type away with your crazy ideas, you release it into the world, and then you just kind of wait to see if it resonates with anyone. And so I always find it to be just like a great miracle. Anytime someone tells me they, they I'm, I, I, it's yeah. a miracle they found it, <laughs> that, you know, it just showed up in your life. And then it's a yeah. miracle that any of the ideas resonated because, you know, in the end, I got some great book writing advice, which is just write something that resonates with yourself. Mm-hmm. and just trust that you're not that special and it might resonate with other people too. (laughs) And uh, that's how I wrote it. And and I'm always so touched and joy overjoyed by the fact that it's helpful or useful or resonant. It it was just, I mean, like breathtakingly resonant. I think that's, it was like this, this problem is being articulated so clearly and I recognize it in myself 
And here's a here's a path forward. And it just it really has lit me up. So so let's jump in. I I, I thought um so you write that that the book is really about this the tension between the culture of open options and the and the counterculture of commitment. And so maybe to start, why don't you just why don't you just walk us back and talk about how these two ways of being in the world sort of started coming into focus for you? Yeah, you know, this this started with a disconnect between what I was observing and the advice I was getting from older people. So, you know, uh, the first kind of uh, revelation was that I kept noticing that probably the most common advice that older people were telling younger people was this phrase that almost became, you know, I, I started thinking about it. Oh, this is the creed of our time. And that phrase was keep your options open. You know, everyone, everyone said, you know, what they we didn't get much advice on kind of what to lean towards. So in lieu of that, we got the advice of keep your options open. Don't lock yourself in. Don't, you know, stick with something for a long time. Don't make a commitment to something that will lock down your future self. The most important thing is to liberate your future self from any uh, choices you make now. And um, then, okay, that would be all well and good. You know, I, I followed that advice. I still often have trouble not following that advice today, <laughs> even after writing a book on how it's bad advice. Um <laughs> But what happened, the reason that I started getting concerned about that is I started observing, okay, well, who are the people that are making the biggest impact and at the same time feeling the most joy? It was usually the same people. So two really important causes, you know, people who have found joy in their life and people who have changed the world for the better. And I noticed that what, you know, they were all different. They all had different paths to becoming these kind of heroic figures or figures to admire. But what they all had in common is they completely ignored the advice of keeping their options open. <laughs> Instead, they made a commitment to particular things, particular people, particular communities, particular institutions, particular craft practices, particular causes, um, you know, and they stuck at it for a long time. And they were who I eventually, you know, deemed in the book, long haul heroes. And so, I, you know, that idea was the idea that's kind of took over my heart for the last 10 years, which is why are we being told to keep our options open when the people that seem to have escaped that advice are the ones that are, you know, receiving what we seek, which is impact and joy. And um, and that's where the idea kind of sprouted of of exploring that. With love, too. Why do we feel like we want to infinitely browse? And, you know, why is it hard to make that jump? What are the fears that stand in the way? And what are the nudges that we can give each other and ourselves to overcome those fears and receive the gifts on the other side of those fears? Yeah. I definitely want to dive into what those what those fears are, but maybe could you give us a little bit more framing on what what you think has happened here? Like, is this is this a generational issue? Like, or would you say... Millennials are the are the first generation that's really being given this advice on a regular basis, or does it go back farther than that? Um, you know, yeah, 100, you know, 200 years ago, were people way, ever thinking in terms of in terms of keeping their options open, or was it just you know, commitment in, all the way down? In some way, being young, like being in your 20s or early 30s, um, has always been a challenge of making a commitment. You know, you can prove that by just reading things from the 1600s, the 1800s. And you'll see in the novels, there are 20-somethings grappling with, should I marry this person? Should I go off to <laughs> war? Should I should I take this job and follow my dad's apprenticeship you know, path? That right. is my last name. So, so it's always part of youth culture. I'm not going to be the type that says everything's bad today. However, I will say there are a lot of factors of modern life that are aggravating it and rapidly accelerating in the last 30 years. 
And mostly what that, you know, there are two things that I think are intertwined that lead to that. One is the obvious one, which is technology. You know, we talk a lot about, you know, the super modern technology of like smartphones leading not only, you know, I took this phrase infinite browsing mode to describe our lack of commitment, but it's literally infinite browsing mode. I took it as a metaphor of a thing that literally happens on (laughs) smartphones, which is you can swipe through a thousand partners (laughs) on an app. You can look at a thousand different homes on Zillow. You can see a thousand different ways of being on Instagram. And so you're inundated with choices. And there's a great work, Barry Schwartz's The Paradox of Choice, that was already talking about this in the early 2000s, of just the amount of choices, the technological modern society. But I even, you know, you could go way back and say there's like a 150 year story of, you know, before the car and before communication technology, you know, movies, radio, television, and eventually the internet um, and car, you know, on the transportation side, cars, airplanes, boats, trains, things like this. um, You mostly were limited forcibly into your choice of only being able to like get as far as the next town, you know, by each day or something. And so, you know, making your commitment might've been easier Um, with this technology. You see all these experiences and you have the means of getting to all those experiences. So you're just inundated with choice. The other aspect is culturally probably intertwined with this technology. Culturally, there's been a change in the institutions that help us attach So one of the great institutions that help you attach is like civic life. And that's something I really care about, which is associational life, like the types of things like civic clubs, like Rotary Club or Boy Scouts or religious congregations or things like or summer camps or schools that have a kind of moral culture to them where people, elders are there and feel comfortable telling you, hey, I think you should try this out or, hey, I think this is a way you should do. Or even the aunt that's willing to say, hey, I think you should ask that person that you keep talking that I saw you, you know, looking at at that party, you know, uh, you should ask them out. That culture of, you know, institutions and elders feeling comfortable helping you attach to other things has withered. And we have, you know, that's not just nostalgia. We have sociology stats that say, you know, religious congregations, civic associations, you know, people being willing to introduce someone else to a partner have all declined over the last 50 years. And so I think there's a cultural aspect to this, a desire to remain neutral and a lack of the binding institutions too. Yeah. Yeah, I can feel it in myself that it, it is much easier to say no to something than it is to say yes. And I think I think it's Casper Terkyle actually that you quote at some point and and he says it's hard to make a voluntary commitment because you feel like you have to defend everything they are and have ever been. And that's just impossible and it feels like it I think what was really powerful in the book is that I realized that I was starting to kind of hold as a value that I am aligned always. Like I I realized I was kind of holding up this impossible idea that Everything that it that I associate with should align perfectly with my personal values. And otherwise, if when if it doesn't align, then and I make that voluntary commitment, then there's some kind of moral compromise that's happening. And you really reframed that for me. And I and so I'd love for you to talk about that. Like how how our identity gets sort of tangled up in these associations. Because for me, that is the reason I I don't want to be wholehearted about something because it feels like I, I'm recognizing there's dissonance. So that must mean I can't commit all the way. Yeah, I you know, I call this the fear of association. And this was a part in thinking about the book and writing the book that 
I, I didn't actually have a lot of precedent on. So I have these two other fears. Fear of regret is very obvious. You know, you, you're scared you're going to wake up in 20 years and wish you made a different decision. And fear of missing out. Almost everyone's been talking about for 10 years. You know, the idea that if you commit to something, you can't be everywhere doing everything. But this fear of association is really particular and new, I feel, um, especially mm. among my generation of millennials, which is... This idea, as you laid out, that, you know, if I join a cause, I'm accountable to the cause and all the aspects of the cause and all the leaders of the cause and all my fellow comrades in the cause. If I join a place and really feel part of that place, I, you know, I get the good and the bad. If I marry someone, you know, they have this aspect that is not you know, oh gosh, I'm accountable to that. I'm known as their wife or their husband or or whatever, you know. Um, and specifically, I think we see this a lot with religious congregations or associations or institutions where um, you feel like, oh, you know, they have this history that's has a lot of warts, um, you know, and even warts is underplaying some of the warts, you know, calling it that real deep injustices. Um, and even calling it history is underplaying that because that history is still very alive today in many institutions. And um, what made me, how do we overcome that? You know, first off, we have to admit that no institution that involves other people is going to check all the boxes of what you want. And that is going to live up to everything that you are now. You yourself do not live up to all of the check boxes <laughs> you want to check. You know, we're all hypocrites because we're all humans. And the thing is, you know, and so what you have to do is you have to join and then through joining, you're then part of this organic whole and you can bring those values into it. And in fact, this is the major way that things change. Most things change from members themselves um, because the members themselves have the trust and the relationships to transform the organization. If it's only outsiders trying to change an organization, the defenses get up, the hackles get up, the sense that you don't really understand us and we should get into a defensive crouch. It's much harder for outsiders to change something. Um, the deepest transformations happen when insiders change something. So if you actually quit all the associations, you lose all the good because they eventually die out. But then the bad actually gets into this death spiral where the only people that are left are the people that actually kind of like the bad stuff. And the organizations <laughs> hit this death spiral where they get worse and worse and worse. And so we actually need to do is we need to all enter them and not check our values at the door, but enter it, but and not dominate with our values because part of being part of a community is the give and take, but bring our values to the table of mutuality with the organization where we do, we, you know, we pay a little price to the organization by being a member, living up to it, not just seeming like we're an outsider trying to tear it all down. But we also, you know, give our full values to it by saying the next time there's a big decision in it, saying, I think. I think we need to transform this aspect or reckon with this history or something like that. And out of that comes a community of people that are going through the exact same thing and facing the exact same tensions. The gift on the other side of the fear of association, all the discomfort of that is the deep comfort of having lifelong friends that have been with it, navigated that whole that whole painful journey with you. Um, and uh, that's the yeah. best you can hope for. That's awesome. We, our friend Brian McLaren has written a little bit about a very similar concept, and especially in his book, Do I Stay Christian? He uh, he illuminated this concept that he called, and I think he was quoting someone uh, named Nadia Bowles-Weber, who calls it the cult of innocence and the desire that we all have to associate ourselves with morally, uh, sort of morally 
perfect institutions and organizations and and associations. And his uh, one of the point that he makes is not that just just that we lose out on the benefits of association uh, when we insist on being part of the cult of innocence um, by separating ourselves from morally compromised uh, morally compromi- compromised organizations, but that it also um, sort of increases the amount of tribalism that we feel because we feel that we've joined we've joined ourselves to the cult of innocence that is perfectly morally pure and therefore have the right to cast stones at all of the at all of the morally impure organizations and institutions that exist amen you know this is the thing it's in the end what mutual you know one of my big regrets in writing this book because from the conversations since writing it I've kind of had some deeper clarity um, on it. And I wish you could like write a second edition of a book and say, here's what I think now. But I guess you have to like, I make, you know, I thought it was about commitment. But what it's really about is relationship, Um, organic mutuality of relationship. And commitment is just the prerequisite of relationship. You know, you enter into a relationship of trust where through your commitment, you believe that, you know, it will still exist in the future. Um, and even if I give a little bit and partake in the reciprocity of it, I know I'll get it back eventually because we're all committed. No one's just going to take, take, take and then run. And one of the things about relationship is we have to be mutually trans open to being mutually transformed by each other, whether it's just a marriage, the smallest of institutions to a giant community. The community can't get in that defensive, rigid crouch where they think they're all perfect and there's nothing more to do. In fact, they think that's the thing that's going to keep them alive. That's actually the thing. That is death. Mm -hmm. Rigidity is death. Organic mutuality and the give and take of everything is life. And the thing is, we as individuals who want to live our values and bring our values to institutions, the funny thing is, by joining, the, the way to gain the power to have the impact is actually doing the brave thing, which is being willing to be transformed in that relationship too. That maybe by joining the institution, you might rethink some of your preconceived uh, entities because you're not really being honest with the institution if you're just there to transform it and not yeah. be transformed by it. Um, and that's that takes a leap of faith. It takes courage. It's really, you know, you know, you can't get at, you know, uh, there's a great Joe Pug, my favorite singer-songwriter line, uh, there is no peace that's cheaply found. You know, um, yeah, you, have, yeah. you have to pay the price. And the price is uh, the vulnerability to be transformed by the relationship. Yeah, I really I really resonated with that point. And I think that I think that the question that I kept coming back to over and over is that or, or maybe it was just like this is some internal resistance because it was such a reframing for me. But I, I think the way I had always thought of commitment is that it was sort of a it was sort of a one to one ratio with like what the organization earned like it had to be this good to, to to earn this much commitment and so it felt i think in a lot of ways that's just not commitment but but i guess i would love for you to just talk about making those choices making you know making the choice to choose to to commit to something because if it's not all about being in the best club like confirming <laughs> that this is the absolute best club then like what is it that can be strong enough to to require your commitment. Yes. You know, this is the thing, you know, there is, a, I'll say a, a few caveats from my kind of enthusiastic statement of everyone okay. should jump in. <laughs> you know, we should still use discernment in what we want to enter into relationships with. 
And um, and that even includes after you've made the commitment, we should still use discernment if it's time to quit. You know, people said, oh, this is a people told me, oh, this is a book about not quitting. I go, not at all. It's a book about eventually stopping browsing. It's not yeah. about not quitting. And in fact, quitting and knowing you can quit might be the nudge you need too willing to stop browsing because you can always, you know, the fact of you can hold in the back of your head, really in the end, you can kind of quit, um, might make you make the leap because the whole goal is to just get that first seed um, that gets planted and let the organic power of relationship do its own work. Um, You make the first brave act by committing and joining. But then after that, there's all these natural processes, the stuff you learn, the connections you make, the relationships, the sense of purpose you have, the depth of knowledge you gain, the way the world is opened up to you when you're fully inside of it. That does its own work. It's not always constantly willpower to stick at it, but all those magical roots that get attached to you and connect to you, ligaments, you know, uh, religiosity, the word lig is the same as in ligament, the ties that bind, um, is... uh, only happens when you really stop browsing and join. And and I'll just I'll 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 state it very strongly. I'll state it in the most strongest terms that you don't have to join everything. I am very glad I'm half Jewish and I'm very glad that some of my uh Jewish uh ancestors and some of my other Jewish ancestors uh didn't have this fortune. They had the deep misfortune. I'm very glad that some of my Jewish ancestors looked at what was happening in in Germany and said, now is not the time to commit to Germany, you know, in in the 1920s and 30s, and said, this is not the time to join and try to transform this. This is not a relationship that is working out well, and I got to cut and run, you know, and and get out of here. And I, I, I don't say that lightly. Other people didn't have that option. But, you know, a lot of people are alive today because people gave up on a commitment to a country and tried to escape because they knew the time was up. And that's the most extreme example. You know, not everything is worth joining. (laughs) Let me do a lighter example. You know, some clubs are, you know, some clubs aren't the place to be. Some places aren't what's going to work for your family. Some relationships, uh, it doesn't seem like the other person is in the relationship with you. And it doesn't look like this is a place where a seed is going to be planted and the roots are going to be made. So this is not a claim of like everything is commit, you know, everything can happen. So the question is you have to use discernment, but the, the thing is there is no connection. This is the, this is the bigger point now that we've established. You don't have to join everything. And Pete's not telling (laughs) you to keep trying with every institution. The, the, the point I'm trying to make is that, there is no institution and no relationship that is formed without a little bit of faith and a little bit of vulnerability. And so if you think you're almost there and you feel like, oh, there's just a little bit where it's not perfectly aligning, that is exactly the best case scenario, you know, because the stuff that makes up for that little bit of misalignment that's haunting you is faith. Um, and is that that leap of faith that that you jump in because that is the magic that eventually binds things. It's a miracle that, you know, you water a seed and a plant comes out. There's some extra spirit there. And it's the same with relationships. You need that extra spirit of faith and commitment, which is kind of the offering. I, I kind of think of it in kind of a woo-woo way. It's the offering you make of bravery 
to have the magic happen that has all the roots take hold that gives you the gift of purpose and depth and and the comfort of friends and community that comes with this i know that was a long-winded no no no. you just gave us the holocaust and abusive relationships (laughs) and the magic of binding but i think it's all in there (laughs) yeah no i think i think you just gave us about six instagram quotes in the last two minutes actually so uh that was that that was a perfect little monologue um i want to and this is (laughs) so this is getting very much at one of my favorite parts of the book and the one that I grappled with the most, which is this this concept of agency. Um, and the, one of the metaphors that you use in the book is this idea that we're in a hallway walking through our decisions are the rooms off the, you know, off the hallway. And what we want to do is enter into a freely chosen room. We don't want to be in a locked room and we don't want to be, you say, in the hallway. We want to be in a freely chosen room. And if I can get like a little bit concrete with this, I think people of faith people uh, that were born into religious institutions sometimes struggle with this. Um, like as a, you know, lifelong member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I there have been times in my life when I have asked myself, am I in a freely chosen room or am I in a locked room? You know, it, like, have I actually made this decision or am I here just because I was born here and then it's the air I'm breathing and I'm I'm not taking an objective look at, um, at, what I'm associating with. And I don't know if it was a decision that I actually made. Uh, Do you resonate with that struggle at all or have any any advice? You know, that whole idea of voluntary commitment as this third way between nothingness, you know, nothingness uh, that the trads all complain about and rigid involuntary commitment that the progs all complain about, you know, uh, (laughs) you know, it felt like the third way was voluntary commitment, not, you know, not being satisfied, having been liberated from the locked rooms, not being satisfied in not be in living in the hallway, but, um, but also having a moment of agency where you freely choose to take ownership over, um, over your commitments. And, you know, I think that is that is one of the I you know, I don't have much more profound to say than just to say I think that agency is one of the ingredients to to the life, you know, to the the vigorous relationships that we want, the like life-giving relationships that if that's kind of what authenticity is. Authenticity is like owning the connection that you have. And if it was just inherited, it's not you haven't had that important ingredient of owning it. And I just have noticed that those uh, the organic relationships that bear the most fruit that give you, you know, these gifts on the other sides of the fears of commitment, you know, a sense of purpose, a sense of depth, a true community, uh, a sense of kind of authentically being part of it and not being alienated from it um, needs that extra ingredient. Oftentimes, that thing you choose might be the one you inherited, but mm-hmm. there needs to be a moment where you can do your best to step outside of it to the extent we can and re-choose to do it. You know, there's there's this idea. I don't know. I, I, I didn't look too much into, you know, you should get a true Amish person on here to talk about it. I'm not an expert, but from my sense of what a rumspringa is in the Amish yeah. community, it's um, the rumspringa is that uh, Amish people in a coming of age are asked to leave the community and re-decide to join it. Um, a much more secular version of this is like Tony Shea with Zappos shoes used to tell everyone right after they were hired, 
I'll pay you like $5,000 to quit right now because I really want you to decide to do this. Um, and yeah. then everyone had to kind of pass through that moment where they had to think, oh, I could get this free $5,000 and not really be part of this company. <laughs> this is a much right way on the other side of the spectrum of Goofy to like oh. then like yeah. your full religious and village life as an Amish person. But um I do think that's a really important moment. Um, and uh, and I think that's the only way we're going to grapple with uh, the fact that we do know that there are a thousand choices available to us. Cat Stevens, when he said there are a million ways to be, that is true in modern life. And we might need that moment where it, we're not going to be satisfied with just taking on what we inherited, um, both on a like justice level and on just like a personal satisfaction level. And so kind of having that moment where we step outside and then voluntarily yeah. choose who we are. Do you feel like there's a difference maybe in the before and after in, in terms of how we're showing up as a part of it, as a part of an organization or an association uh, before and after that, that re-choosing? Like, is there, have you seen, you know, among your long haul heroes or anyone else that you've talked to that there's a, uh, just a difference in approach when there is that, when there is that conscious choice? Yeah, you know, first off, I'll just say kind of like there is I'm jumping from field to field here. And, you know, that's kind of the place I work in is just trying to be a compost pile of a bunch of different fields <laughs> instead of being an expert in any of them. But, um, you know, all of psychology, you know, all of like therapy and psychology is basically, you know, one of the huge revelations of the psychological revolution of the last 150 years is that there is a hesitation and lack of vigor that comes from uh, gnawing subconscious senses of inauthenticity that the, the any level of difference between what you're doing and what you feel like is your true self um, will eventually come out and it might, it will come out in some form. That is like the big Freudian or Jungian like idea, you know, it will come out in you slow walking your work. It'll come out in tiny moments where you're like, have anger that comes out of nowhere. It'll come out in, um, you, uh, you know, not, not bringing as much, you know, doing a bad job of bringing something to the potluck of the friend that you feel there's something, <laughs> you know, of the friend hosting the party that you feel there's something unresolved in. And yeah. in some ways, that, you know, the big therapy insight is that look at those moments of hesitation or uh, and, and notice that that might be a keyhole to a level of inauthenticity. And then the flip side, the hopeful flip side of that is if you can work out that deep stuff, it shows up in your daily life. You cook the best thing for the potluck. You bring your all to work. You stop making little comments under your breath in your marriage because you worked out that deep thing and usually working out that deep thing is writing a story co and often with community co-writing a story that you feel an ownedness about that you co-own it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that's key there, you know, in, in some of the long haul heroes I've, I've explored, so many of them told me stories of a moment where they, um, they had this moment where they're like, am I in or am I out? Um, mm -hmm. And usually right after that, you know, one of them told me they were in the priesthood and they in Catholicism and they had a moment where they had to uh, decide they fell in love with someone and they said, well, you know, this is the moment where I quit the priesthood and marry someone and have this different vocation of matrimony uh, or I, I don't do this and I double down on my commitment to, uh, you know, being a priest um, and, and married to the church, as they like to say. Um, and uh, um, and 
uh, he had that moment where he's like, this is the decision moment. And then when he returned and decided to stay a priest, his priesthood went into hyperdrive. You know, he finally mm-hmm. felt like he made the decision and he was owning it. Um, and there are so many examples of that. You know, people who are like, you know, Lori Wallach, who was in this huge international global trade cause to bring global trade justice to like American policy. Um, you know, she had a moment where she said, no one is doing this. Am I going to be the global trade person? Like, is that yeah. who I'm going to be? Is this going to be my legacy? That's going to be the first line of my obit, you know, in the New York Times, if I decide to go down this road. And then she came to peace with that and went, you know, went went perfectly down the road and went gangbusters on it, you know? And so um, I do think there is something about unleashing a power that comes yeah. when you own your story. Mm. I, I loved in this when you're talking about long haul heroes and and the difference between long haul heroes, which feels and looks a lot more like gardening versus I think what you called cinematic dragon slaying, which happen it's like when change happens in this really big moment and and they're heroic instantly. And and I I realize like I think there is I think that's part of what's so hard about sticking around that you almost change is so slow, you see nothing. And so you start wondering if you're just wasting you're wasting effort and energy and it was such a it was such a great reminder that it it is going to be so slow it might even seem imperceptible and that that's just the nature of the thing and if it's happening in a big moment probably it's not lasting change anyway you know totally so <laughs> i i would love if you want to for somebody who hasn't read the book like what do you have a favorite long haul hero or or just an example of of what this looks like to be um i one of my favorite metaphors that you use is the seesaw with with a bucket of soil on one side and everybody's scooping the soil in a teaspoon at a time. And so it feels like absolutely nothing is happening until the very last teaspoon. And then suddenly the seesaw tips. And and, and of course that's how change happens. But I think it's so hard when you're in the middle of it and all you actually see is that it's not working. Totally, totally. You know, this is, in fact, I don't even think this is the, I would go as far as to say, it's not only the best way that change happens. I think it's the only way that Mm-hmm. lasting change really happens like you can get quick change but usually you'll discover it's shallow if it was quick yeah. and um and you know one thing i'll say before i kind of get into examples is the reason to make up for this being so hard i really think we need a cultural shift to celebrate long haul heroism more and i i wish i got more into that in the book you know there are there are actual things we can do to start raising up long haul heroism. Like I'm a big fan of halls of fame um, and mm. walks of fame and like having every institution have that and have a ceremony every year mm. where they induct someone. Um, not for the person that's being inducted, but for the audience of young people that are watching it, because that's a moment every year where someone can talk about, you know, I remember being you and I remember my first year of doing this and yeah. I thought nothing would happen. And look at me now. I'm in the Hall of Fame for this <laughs> high school or for the city or for this institution or something yeah. or for this congregation. I think that's really important. You know, you see it in AA. I really wanted to have a section of AA and 12 step programs mm-hmm. in this thing because they do such a good job of sobriety itself. I wanted to have an example of a triumph that was getting back to, you know, often like the triumph of sobriety is getting back to what other people might call normal from a low. And it's such an example of long haul heroism because you get to such a low and you think I could never get back to 
the sobriety, but they have such a culture in AA and 12 step programs of someone who's 15 years sober saying, let me tell you, you know, getting up there and giving a testimony of, let me tell you the people who just came to their first meeting, what my first meeting was like and how hopeless I was. And let me tell you the story of my 15 years and look at me now, you know, I'm now leading the group and I'm clean and, you know, look at how my life transformed. LDS Church does a great job of having a testimony culture of kind of elders in the community, not the formal elders, but uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. lowercase e elders in the community yeah. talking about their journeys in the church. And That's true. and so I just think that testimony culture of people who are on the other side of it, oh. telling the story over and over again of these their long haul journeys is the key to, to raising that up. Um, well, I, I didn't get to the example. Should I, okay. should I get to sure. some examples? Yeah, maybe give us one that you, yeah, that comes to mind. Yeah, you know, the best I can do, you know, I can tell any of these stories of these specific people, but I think often I like giving, um, there's, there's this old uh, paradox, which is you tell someone, name something in a refrigerator, in your refrigerator, and then they're like, oh, uh, 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 you know, they can name any food and they can't <laughs> think of anything, but then you say name white things in your refrigerator, and then oh, suddenly wow. they're like eggs, yogurt, milk, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so I it's say name along all hero, it's kind of hard, but, you know, I like um, I like giving people these specifics, and I have this section in the book where I say, okay, let's talk about specific things you can make a commitment to. So I say there's citizens, which is a commitment to a cause. And like anyone who's worked on a 20-year cause, like the abolitionists or the early civil rights movement folks, you know, patriots is what I call people who commit to a place. That's anyone who's kind of the the old head of a, of a neighborhood who really knows it, kind of had their time. They were on city council. They were off. They're on the school board. They were off. They organized the annual parade. You know, they have this whole legend. They know everyone in the neighborhood. You yeah. know, they they welcome you. That's kind of local patriots. Builders are people who kind of took an idea from a spreadsheet in a Google Doc to being a business somewhere that you can walk into. You know, stewards are the people, you know, I talked to my local rabbi in our town and, you know, she said, I inherit this tradition that I have to hold on to and pass to another generation. Any of these people that, you know, have been a longtime bishop of a, of a ward or something, or would it yeah, be a stake? Yeah, yeah. I, Man, no, you got, the, you got you, the lingo. Well, the wow. ward, I got my lingo down. <laughs> Very impressive. You know, um, you know they, they, they're stewarding this thing that was handed to them that goes back decades, you know. Artisans are people who commit to a community of practice. The people who have like, you know, they've been the they've been the banjo player you know? and yeah. they teach young people banjo and they remember getting their first banjo. And then finally, the most important one I call companions, which are people who are committed to specific people. Any parent who's been through the parenting journey, anyone who's been through the marriage journey, any old friends that have been through thick and thin with friendship, they're all long haul heroes too. So sometimes I oh, like I listing it. that off in full. I know it's a, a, a long winded, no, but thank you. it helps yeah. you think as a listener, think about who are the local patriots? Who are the companions that made you who you are? Who are the people stewarding institutions? Who are the people that really lived up to their call of citizenship by taking on a cause over the long haul and chipping away at it? Yeah. Um, what, you know, Show your gratitude to them and 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 uh, ask them how they did it. It'll you'll learn a lot. That's cool. Yeah, could you dive in a little bit more on the the broader concept of patriotism as you as you treat it in the book? I thought that was really fascinating. I think when a, a lot of us when we think of when we think of uh, patriotism or being patriots, there's this sort of at least subconscious idea that the reason that we are um, so passionate about our country or the place where we live is because it's the best country or the best place to yeah. live. You reframe that a little bit. Could you could you talk about that idea? Yeah, there's this amazing uh, song. I think uh, it's by uh, I think Van he's Vance. called Little 
yeah, oh. little uh, little Steven. Yeah, uh, Steven Van Zandt. Or, yeah, okay. he, he has yeah. this great. And uh, Eddie Vedder sings it a lot and Jackson Brown sings it. And it's I am a patriot. And I, I just love it because it's I am a patriot. I love my country because uh, my country is all I know, <laughs> you know, and, um, <laughs> and I liked it because it was so humble. It was not yeah. worth the best. It was just I was born here, you know, yeah. and that doesn't mean that um, you have to defend the place you were born, obviously. In fact, I, what I took away from it and and the people who have sang that song have been war protesters and, you know, people who have stood up to chest beating, you know, flag raising folks, like especially like, you know, Eddie Vedder or something. But um yeah. They uh, the what they what I I think they take it as and what I take it as is it says I'm a member of this place. There's kind of a humble membership in this. And the the center of it is loving the specific people that are part of this place with me. And that's the foundation is that I'm really going to love these people. And in loving them, I'm going to be transformed, transform them and together transform this country through our the revelation and enactment of our love of this place. And I think there's a religious aspect to that, which is there is some content to love. If you truly love each other and you try to reveal and enact what the depth of that love is, it might transform a place's warts to be a better neighbor in the community of nations, which is what, you know, uh, chest beating patriotism is in denial of, you know, yeah. we don't have to be a good neighbor in the communications because we're already perfect, you know? Um, and, uh, you know, the people that truly love a place are, are that, and there's also a scale aspect to this. I liked having my examples be local patriots because often in the last, you know, I'll be, I'll, I'll, I'll reveal some of my political opinions here. I think in the last 25 years, there's been a perversion of national patriotism that has shown up in the polling numbers where we've gone from post 9-11, you know, people who said they want to be a patriot, you know, 95% of the country to most young yeah. people saying that identity of patriot has no resonance with them at all. It's a total crisis of patriotism. Um, I think it's because it's been misused as a perversion of large scale national rigid agendas. Whereas the way you rebuild something and earn the trust back of what patriotism is, is go down to the localist scale of what needing neighborhood patriots, people who say, um, can I tell a story of a great yes, neighborhood please. patriot I just heard? Yes. Uh, I'm always in the abstract. And my wife is always saying, <laughs> give concrete examples. <laughs> Everyone's lost in the clouds when you're talking. And I have a great concrete example. I just ran into this person who's from, uh, I think it's, uh, you know, this northern town in Wisconsin. And um, everyone said, um, I think it's called uh, uh, Marinette, Wisconsin. Let's just say it's Marinette. I, I'm getting it wrong. And I apologize <laughs> if they're listening to this, but let's just say it's Marinette, Wisconsin. Um, and uh, she said everyone, she was talking at church with all of her friends and all the young people were leaving. It has one of the highest ages, average ages in Wisconsin. And when, you're, when your average age goes up and up, that's a problem for a town because nothing against old people. Yes. But like, you know, one of the signs of the vibrancy of a town is like, <laughs> does it replicate itself and have new generations come in and kind of a chain of being from the old to the young? And um, they asked people in their church, why are young people leaving? And they all said there's nothing to do in Marinette or something. Um, I'm getting the town wrong, but there's nothing yeah. to do in Marinette. And what she, what her and her husband did is they made like t-shirts that said, there's nothing to do in Marinette. <laughs> and they made this zine and buttons and signs and, 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 uh, you know, merch. <laughs> 
and tote bags that said there's nothing to do in Marinette. And each of the merch came with a zine that uh, like a directory where they went around to everyone who was hosting events and classes and things you can do and people who were willing to be friends with other people and like do things together as young people and got them all to write up in their directory what you can do with them. Like you can come to our cooking class. You could do this. And it was like a hundred things to do in Marinette. And it was called the, there's nothing to do with in Marinette book. (laughs) And it's become this local movement of deep local pride. And what it's resulted in is there is now more people thinking up ideas of what to do in Marinette. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, Both of them, someone saying there's nothing to do in Marinette and someone reclaiming that and saying, we're going to just be different here. um, Is both are self-fulfilling prophecies in different directions. And um, that's what a local patriot can do. Just uh-huh. saying, I'm going to be prideful of this place. I'm not going to say it doesn't fit my interests. I'm going to change it because that's what I'm doing as a member of this relationship with the larger community. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's such a great example. <laughs> I, I was thinking about other, and this could be in a political context, but in any context where you're committed, you're in, you're embedded, you're a part of a group and you feel like, the group could be a better version of itself. Or or maybe you're just, I love that you keep bringing this back to humility. That, that it's not that we know exactly what should come for any for anyone else, even for us. Like we are, this is so organic for the institution and for ourselves. But bringing our values into that conversation and having that wrestle is is, is how change happens. But what, what keeps coming to mind for me is that in some contexts, there isn't going to be the same um, sort of like pride and excitement and everybody jumps on the bandwagon and you create this new thing and it's really fun. Like when you talk about, you know, Martin Luther King, of course, and and just like he he's seeing something that feels broken and really wants to change, but like there's so much resistance and he's still committed, but like that's a really hard long haul to be involved yeah. in. And and I think a lot of times when you're in that position, you're not passing the purity tests of the of the innermost part of the group. And so it I think what you're often called is a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's like, you're not really one of us. And there's, there's really some um, like explicit messaging around. If you don't think that the group is perfect, then you're not part of the group. So I I would love for you to address that kind of long haul work, because I I imagine that there are people listening to this conversation who are like, I don't know, like, I love the sound of it, but like, I'm so tired. Like I'm tired and I feel like an outsider. And like, I don't know if, I don't know if that maybe I resolve the dissonance by just like cutting myself off. Like that would be an instant yep. Yep. resolution yep. of this dissonance that I feel. But I yep. but it's a group I love. Like it's a group I yep. love. <laughs> I've already given my kind of statement on sometimes it's good to cut yourself off. So right. I'm never going to stand being said, for yes. taking abuse forever. You know, you don't have to do <laughs> right. that. That being yeah. said, I'll say a sobering thing and a hopeful thing. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, within sticking with something. So we've okay. already covered not sticking with something. Within sticking with something, here's a hard road and a hopeful road. The hard road is, and this is one of my favorite, one of the parts I was proudest to be able to get into the book, which was this section on prophecy. And I'm not using it in the LDS term. I'm using it kind of in the <laughs> secular term of prophecy or other traditions right. term of prophecy, <laughs> totally. which is um, prophecy in the kind of secular sense of prophecy is often used to mean like predicting the future. Um, and uh, and the deeper kind of historic Abrahamic Judeo-Christian like sense of prophecy is actually not people who predict a future. It's not like the oracles, the Greek oracles. It's someone who is able to see so clearly the present um, relative to the mission of what the present is trying to do and relative to, Mm -hmm. on a religious sense, what God needs 
you know, what God thinks about the present. Um, there's great books on this. Abraham, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel's The Prophets is a great, uh, is like the classic work on this. Um, uh, they see what needs to be done and what these prophets from the biblical prophets like Isaiah, you know, to, uh, and Moses to the, uh, the modern prophets like Martin Luther King or others. Um, what they do is they declare, you know, they often, you know, they shake things up a lot by declaring not everything is bad. They declare we are not living up to our mission. And so they really hold these two tensions, the mission of the community, they seem to be more loyal to than anyone else. Mm -hmm. And then the status of the community today, as it's currently organized, they seem more distant from the community as anyone else. So they hold this tension of, in some ways, they're the most deep member of the org by being a prophet. And they're the least deep member of the org by like not going along and getting along with everyone. And what the prophetic calling is, is to hold that tension. And what that is, is in fact an act. And so I've said it already, that is an act of deep membership to be a prophetic witness to what needs to be done. And so if you read prophetic rhetoric, you, you know, I'm preaching to the choir with you all, but if any listeners who haven't kind of tapped into this world yet, um, when you read prophetic rhetoric, it's always this like three-step. It's always like a really deep and clear understanding with deep resonance of like what the core mission is of the org. Um, like they seem to be more in touch with the history of the org, more in touch with the original spirit of it. Two, this really blistering critique of what's going on now that's like threatens everything and shakes everything up. And then this hopeful ending of, well, you know, what could we be? We could be 10 times closer to the depth and alive in the spirit of what we are if we shake things up a bit. And that's what it always is, that three-step. And so um, some of us are called to be prophets. Uh, And I think all of us are in minor ways, little moments of prophetic witness. And there is a community, you know, Mark Ellis, this great modern writer on the prophets, says there's actually like a cosmic community of prophets that you are joining with everyone else who has been through this pain of being the one who bears prophetic witness. Um, and you're going to be exiled in micro ways by doing it. But over time, you have to trust. This is why he calls it a community. What all of them have in common, if it's authentic prophecy is their coworkers with God. You know, you you're you you are standing with if you want to go religious about it, coworkers with God. Martin Luther King literally said that phrase. Heschel talks about that. In a slightly more secular way, you're standing with the founders of the org, you know, trying to revive the spark that eventually created it and actually bring it to more life. So that's the sobering thing. Prophecy is hard. It's a challenge and that deepest membership is hard. Here's the hopeful thing. What every single long haul hero does and what every single successful prophet does to stick with it is they build community in their wake and they're probably not doing something right if they're not gaining some followers and comrades and, you know, um, with them. And uh, the, the comfort that they can get in the loneliness is you never know who you're speaking to. And if you say something crazy to a silent crowd of 25 um, and you think they all hated it and they're going to exile me. You never know if four people there are secretly thinking, thank God someone has finally said what I've been thinking this whole time. Because what you're trying to speak to and what you have to have faith in a higher power about is that what your prophetic witness is trying to do is actually not come out of nowhere. What you're trying to do is call upon the kind of latent deviant 
thoughts that are in people that are ready to burst forth as well. Because the only thing that change is actually when things that are already there inside of us are awakened, not like the complete Mm. new out of nowhere. And so I'll tell one quick story about this and then I'm sorry I'm long-winded. but No, this is perfect. You know, there was this great guy, Gar Alperovitz, who I love, who writes about cooperatives. Um, and he used to do anti-war organizing in the 70s. And he used to knock on doors in neighborhoods and be like, hi, I'm organizing this neighborhood against the war. And um, every single person, he said, during like the worst parts of the war would say to him, um, oh my gosh, um, I can't sign on because all my neighbors are against what you're doing, but I <laughs> am for you. And then he'd go to the next door and they'd say, oh, you know, all my neighbors are against what you're doing, but I kind of oh. am for you. Next door, all my neighbors are against what you're doing, <laughs> but I've got it for you. And these prophetic moments of transformation are eventually you try to get a few people to make the brave moment of coming out mm-hmm. and saying, I'm kind of with you for this alternative. And then suddenly it becomes kind of spreads like fire because it was already latently there in everyone. And that's what you got to hope for, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I'm curious in your experience or, uh, or just in your observation is, is there ever an institution or person that is above uh, prophetic critique? Um, I think this happens on occasion, at least with religious institutions that they sort of differentiate themselves from secular institutions or other you know, organizations because they believe that what they've established is God ordained. And so any, any mere person critiquing it has fallen out of line. What's your, what's your gut reaction to that? Yeah. You know, it is very hard. This is, you know, I'm a, I'll, I'll admit something. I'm not going to preach it here. I'm, I'm a lefty and I'm kind of (laughs) anti-authoritarian and like, that's, that's who I am. And I'll just lay cards on the table and not hide that. But one thing I've kind of discovered through this work is I've come to appreciate the difficulty of stewarding an institution. Um, and I've come to like appreciate the kind of shadow flip side of the lefty anti-authoritarians that I'm naturally predisposed to from just like how I was raised and the kind of world I came up in. And other people are in another one. And I've come to appreciate the like ultimate enemy, which is like the authoritarian people running these institutions that are unsusceptible to change because it is a really difficult challenge to steward an institution and to say not have the latest fad mm. to to sometimes a fad comes along and it's actually a prophetic transformative moment where injustice needs to be gotten rid of sometimes the fad comes along and it's some crazy thing that happened that decade that could have like totally ruined the whole institution and gotten rid of all the precious inheritance and the people that are in charge of institutions have to have to discern that (laughs) and so so just on a on a respect level i respect anyone who is sincerely trying to discern whether the latest thing that's coming across their desk is a passing fad or an actual call to transformation authentically um, so that's my love I give to the people that we're all protesting at any time. Yeah. That being said, <laughs> balance on either side, it's it's a balance question. You can't give in to every passing fad and you can't cling tight to everything you inherited. And if we had every leader at every moment in history where something come along saying no, we'd be in a really worse place than we are today. And if we had everyone mm-hmm. come along and say yes, we'd be in a really worse place than we are today. And so you got to have discernment. And um, my one thing I'd say about people who are beyond reproach, you know, this might be, I know this is difficult with different religious traditions. I'm kind of of the belief that all of us 
you know, I believe in the, I think it's Corinthians line. I'm not as, uh, as a Catholic, I'm not as good as a Bible reader as other, <laughs> other religions were, were famously bad Bible readers. But um, uh, the, there's that line, we can only know truth through a glass darkly. And um, I really believe in that idea that we, all of us, no matter any human can only know truth through a glass darkly. And the best method we have of discerning truth is actually trusting that any all of us might have access to a glimmer that comes through that glass darkly. And that if you only limit it to certain people being the ones who have access to those glimmers, you're limiting our ability to see those glimmers. And that's why I'm kind of a believer in deep democracy, which is um, broadening the sense that everyone might have something to share and that God, you know, God sometimes reveals himself to, uh, um, to a, a a a peasant woman in a mansion, you know, like yeah. um, like yeah. that's one of the central messages of Christianity. You never, it, it might be on the margins of power where yeah. the truth might be revealed, and yeah. uh, so organizations that don't have an ear open to those margins, I think, at least in my religious belief, are, are might be misguided. Yeah. Yeah. And on the reformers side, so it's not just the institutions that see through glass, dark, glass darkly and maybe should hold some things somewhat lightly. But on the reformers side, too, it's important to recognize that someone that sees himself that way needs to recognize that they are also seeing through a glass darkly and maybe missing some things and needs to hold what they even things that they might have held as important for a very long time, somewhat, somewhat lightly and be open, like you're saying, to transformation. Yes. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Pete. We are just so excited. Hope everybody will this go is, buy this book because it's this is this is like really truly we need truly right remarkable, yeah. Pete. Amazing yeah. work. You're you're an incredibly non dualistic thinker, and uh, yeah. it, this is I think this is the <laughs> the message that we need. I really appreciate it, and you know, my it is an absolute joy to have these conversations. I, 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 I this is not false humility. I really, you know, my practice is kind. I kind of just see myself as a curator of cool things that I've read or seen or observed, and the whole goal is not to have it be kind of like I come and have figured it out. It's more that oh, this is all really interesting, and let's see what conversations yeah. come out of it. So in many ways, I, I really believe this. Like the book itself and the speech itself were not like the work. The work mm-hmm. is actually, oh, I made my little museum of interesting things I saw yes. and threw it out there in the world. And then what you, what it brings up in you all and then brings up in me as it reflects back out is where hopefully the listener, it brings yeah. something up in them too. And slowly through that process, some light is is shined on stuff. So um, that, I'm, that yeah, this, this conversation itself is the work and it's such a joy to be part of it. Thank well, you thank so much, Pete. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay, thanks so much for listening, and we really hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Pete Davis. And of course, a huge thanks to Pete for coming on. And again, if you'd like to check out Pete's book, it's called Dedicated, and you can find it on Amazon or at other booksellers. And as always, if Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get a chance, we would love for you to leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen on. It really helps get the word out about Faith Matters, and we really appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. And as always, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.